Our sermon for today is called The Occupation of Jesus and Our Need for an Advocate. First section, Guilt's Galling Grip. We are wired with a sense of morality, of right and wrong, of good and evil, so we're very aware of guilt. Guilt can be incapacitating. It's hard to shake like a burr caught on the back of your pant leg. We need someone to help remove this nagging guilt from us, but who? The good news is that Jesus has become our great high priest who died and lives again forever precisely to save us for a relationship with God, removing that clinging burden of guilt. Young Tommy spotted the box of donuts on the kitchen counter. No one was around. Standing on tiptoe, he lifted the lid and spotted one that caught his fancy. It was chocolate sprinkled liberally with icing sugar on top. Ten minutes later, Tommy was playing contentedly in the living room with his toy tractor and wagon when his mother emerged from the kitchen. She asked, Tommy, were you into the donuts? There's one missing. Tommy looked up at his mother ever so innocently and said, Oh, no, Mummy, I would never do that. His mother replied, Why is it I have such trouble believing you when you have icing sugar all around your mouth? You'd better go wash. His cover was blown. I can relate to this story. Recently, Patty's daughters were visiting and I took them for ice cream in Godrich. That store Cravings is aptly named. Patty remained home to do some work in the pasture, but remarked upon my return, I see you had your ice cream. Unfortunately, my chocolatey bear tracks cone had left its indelible mark on my beard, despite repeated attempts to wipe myself clean. To err is human, the saying goes. We have all messed up at some time or other. Hurt people hurt people. Our imperfect parents and others in our life unwittingly perpetuate the same wounds that they had inflicted on them in their past. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 9.3 adds, The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil, and there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. In a society that's increasingly secular, this quest for righteousness and justice is perhaps an annoying legacy from its Judeo-Christian roots. If there is no God, if the material universe is all there is, and we're just random chemical composites dancing to our DNA, who's to say what's right and wrong? If some people choose to love their neighbor and other people would rather eat their neighbor, who's to say one's better than another? Denying God and espousing pure naturalism eliminates meaning and morality and leads one down a very dark path. German social psychologist Erich Fromm, a Jew who fled from the Nazis, wrote, It is indeed amazing that in as fundamentally an irreligious culture as ours, the sense of guilt should be so widespread and deep-rooted as it is. But guilt is hard to shake. It's pervasive even amongst those who have no idea what to do with it. Gary Gilmore was convicted of a double murder and was shot to death by a firing squad in Utah, the first person to be executed in the United States since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. In a letter to his girlfriend, this convicted murderer wrote, It seems that I know evil more intimately than I know goodness, and that's not a good thing either. I want to get even, to be made even, whole, my debts paid, whatever it may take, to have no blemish, no reason to feel guilt or fear. I'd like to stand in the sight of God, 
to know that I'm just and right and clean. When you're this way, you know it. And when you're not, you know that too. It's all inside of us, each of us." End quote. I have a barometer that hangs on the wall and has a dial that goes up or down depending on the air pressure, foreshadowing changes in the weather. Similarly, each of us has a guiltometer inside us that gauges whether we've done something wrong. God has hardwired us with conscience, a sense of morality. Paul describes it this way to the church at Rome. He says this about Gentiles who do not have the Jewish law. Romans 2.15 They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. We're all guilty, aware of mess-ups we've made, people we've hurt. We have secrets we keep hidden lest others find out and we'd be ashamed, exposed. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle once played a practical joke on 12 of his friends. He sent them each a telegram that read, Flee at once, all is discovered. Within 24 hours, all 12 had left the country. We noted last week that chapters 4 to 10 in the book of Hebrews delves into who Jesus is as our high priest. Our passage today extols this great priest's permanence, perfection, peculiarity, and petition. First, the priest's permanence. Dealing with guilt is a bit like cleaning your teeth. Do we always clean our teeth after every meal? Don't all raise your hands. We know it's good to do, but, well, sometimes we let it slide. But let's assume we brush two or maybe even three times a day. Are you ever done brushing forever? No, of course not. As long as you have another meal or snack, you'll need to brush again. And do you ever brush completely? My toothbrush has a timer on it that pulses every half minute to let me know when two minutes are up. Seldom do I go the full two minutes. Even if I did, would my teeth be completely clean? I'm sure if I flossed, I would find more bits. And even if I flossed, I'm sure if my dental hygienist went at it with her tools, she'd find things I'd missed even with flossing. The Old Testament priesthood was a bit like brushing your teeth. It had to be done over and over again, and even then was never complete. Let's talk first about the element of time having to be repeated, not enduring. Hebrews 7, 23 and 24 says, Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. It says, many of those priests. Someone estimated there were 84 priests from the time of Aaron, Moses' brother, down to the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in 70 AD. None was permanent. They all died and had to be replaced. There was a repeated succession, a sequence, one after the other. None persisted longer than a lifespan. They were mortal, passing, ephemeral. By contrast, Jesus' priesthood is permanent because Jesus lives forever. The word translated permanent can mean unchanging, inviolable, valid. His priestly service will never stop. So in terms of the time element, Jesus has it covered. He lives at the Father's side and will never die again. Next section, the priest's perfection. Back to our teeth cleaning analogy. 
We have to do it over and over again. It's never done. And we always do it imperfectly. You'll never get out all those tiniest bits completely. Compare the priests in the Old Testament who were imperfect, men who sinned as we all do. Hebrews 7.28 says, For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. The verse before, verse 27, points out, The other high priests need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for their own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Jesus, however, was able to offer the perfect sacrifice no one else could offer, his holy, sinless self. The earliest writers testify Jesus lived a perfect life, sinless in every respect, because he perfectly obeyed his heavenly Father. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Also Paul, writing about Jesus in 2 Corinthians 5.21, says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. His death on the cross was fundamentally not for him. He'd done nothing wrong. He was framed, but for us. Verse 28b says, The Father's oath appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Complete, nothing to add to him that's missing. In verse 26 extols more the excellent qualities of this high priest. It says, Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He meets our need. He fits the bill. He can get the job done. We already talked about what a great need we have in terms of guilt. Note the descriptors the author uses. One who is holy. That's in reference to God. Next, blameless, without guilt or fraud. That's in relation to other people on the human level. The verse adds Jesus is pure, undefiled, unsoiled in relation to his own moral cleanness. The verse goes on to say Jesus is set apart from sinners, NRSV separate. He's in a class by himself compared to the rest of us, though he, he identifies with us and is really our ideal type, a model, archetypal. But he's so pure and holy, he's in a class of his own, and now exalted above the heavens at the Father's side, till his returning glory on the clouds, accompanied by heaven's forces. Jesus has been made perfect. He meets our need like no other can. One time, the French philosopher named Auguste Comte was deeply engaged in conversation with the Scottish essayist Thomas Carlyle. Comte said he was going to start a new religion that would supplant the religion of Christ. It was to have no mysteries and was to be as plain as the multiplication table. Its name was to be Positivism. Thomas Carlyle replied, Very good, Mr. Comte, very good. All you will need to do will be to speak as never a man spake, and live as never a man lived, and be crucified, and rise again the third day, and get the world to believe that you are still alive. Then your religion will have a chance to get on. Next section, The Priest's Peculiarity. Have you heard the saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch? 
In other words, somebody's got to pay. If our sin and guilt are to be forgiven, who ends up paying the cost? It's not just for a criminal it's not just for a criminal to get off scot-free. The justice system awards penalties for crime. But as sinners, we're already broke. We have no capacity to make payment because we're already condemned. Our flagrant sins have offended God's infinity and holiness, so nothing would ever amount to enough to offset the offense against our Almighty Creator. How is release to be obtained when the guilty party has no ability to pay? No other religion has the doctrine of the Trinity. It's an odd concept full of mystery, hog-tying all attempts to fully explain it. it. The word Trinity is a cobbled-up word not found in the Bible, yet our best attempt at describing the dynamics we see in Scripture. For instance, when Jesus is baptized, the Father speaks from heaven and the Spirit descends like a dove. Three in one, a tri-unity. The Father is not the Son, is not the Spirit, yet they are all God and they are one. In a way, the situation of a fallen humanity needing to be reconciled to Holy God begs some wonderful, unplausible consortium like the Trinity. How else can payment be offered for an infinite sin by so many people unless God himself provides it? Yet, how can God make an offering to appease God's own holiness and just wrath? We are bankrupt, penniless to pay. We need an advocate, a go-between. The book of Job is one of the oldest in the Bible, as far as we can deduce, and wrestles with thorny issues such as how God can be just in the face of suffering. Yet even there, seemingly prophetically, righteous Job, having lost all his wealth and offspring, covered head to foot with painful boils, cries out for a mediator, an advocate. Job 16, verses 18, 19, and 21. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. On behalf of a man he pleads with God, as a man pleads for his friend. There is a high priest who meets our need for an advocate. Hebrews 7.26 It's this peculiar God-man, Jesus. Only a perfectly innocent, pure, holy being could pay the price of our offense. Only a human person could pay our penalty, corresponding to each of us in our humanity. Most peculiar, this advocate is both priest and victim one who offers the sacrifice and the actual sacrifice himself. Hebrews 7.27 says, Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. How did Jesus offer himself? It wasn't a suicide. It was the very purpose for which he came, which he repeatedly predicted to his disciples. Judas betrayed him. The high priest Caiaphas condemned him. Pilate ordered him crucified. Yet it was all divinely foreordained for our salvation, without absolving the participants of their responsibility. Jesus didn't flee when they came to arrest him. He could have chosen a different spot to be that night. He didn't call on legions of angels to come rescue him. He complied with the proceedings because that was how the scriptures would be fulfilled. 
He offered himself as the sacrifice that would atone for our sins in our place. As Isaiah prophesied centuries before, Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. God laid on him, Jesus, our own iniquity, our guilt. He was stricken for our transgression, Isaiah 53, 8. The Lord made his life a guilt offering, Isaiah 53:10. He is a most peculiar priest, being both priest and victim. From God, perfectly holy and sinless, yet identifying with us sinners, Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Next section, the priest's petition. We talked about the priest's permanence, the priest's perfection, the priest's peculiarity, and now finally the priest's petition. We celebrate and exalt Jesus for his work on the cross, after which he sat down at the Father's right hand in heaven. But did you know his work goes on? What, did you, Jesus is out just playing golf each day or binging on pure flicks? Verse 25 tells us about his ongoing occupation. It says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. He can save completely, the verse says. There's been a lot of debate in the news about whether certain vaccines are completely safe. Both AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson vaccines have had very rare blood clotting or platelet issues associated with them. And some countries have stopped their use or restricted them to certain age groups, but overall we're assured it's safer to get them rather than risk infection with coronavirus. But the Jesus vaccine is completely safe. He is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Verse 25. Don't put it off. Life is fragile and can end anytime. We talked last week about how Jesus made it possible for us to draw near to God through the curtain of his body. He's opened the way for you, a sinner, to be forgiven and put right with your maker for all eternity. That's salvation. There's also sanctification, the ongoing process of being made more holy, more like Jesus each day for the rest of our lives with the help of the Holy Spirit. And this verse assures us Jesus is interceding for us. That's what he always lives to do. The verb means to make intercession, to pray or entreat. The Father loves the Son and inclines his ear to the Son's pleading on our behalf. We find the same idea in Romans 8, 28, 32 and 34. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This perfect high priest is petitioning the Father on your behalf. Last section, stay at home, but don't isolate forever. We have a permanent 
perfect, peculiar, petitioning priest whose purpose was to break down the barrier of sin that separated us from our Holy Creator. A great high priest who is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Verse 25. Sin and guilt isolate us, separate us from God, cutting us off in outer darkness, as Jesus calls it. Draw near to God through faith today. Don't be like those who ignore this only way to reconciliation with the Most High. Jesus is worthy of our worship, being holy, blameless, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Verse 26. He loves you and desires a relationship with you through the Holy Spirit given to those who repent. But some choose to worship other things, turning from God to be absorbed in their own goals. The book, Who Walk Alone, author Margaret Evening, relates a dream. She writes, Many years ago I had a dream. It was one of the few coherent dreams that I have ever had, but it was so vivid that even now I can remember the details of it clearly. In the dream I visited hell, where the sub-warden showed me around. To my surprise I was led along a labyrinth of dark, dank passages from which there were numerous doors leading into cells. It was not like hell as I had pictured it at all. In fact, it was all rather religious and churchy. Each cell was identical. The central piece of furniture was an altar. Before each altar knelt, or in some cases were prostrated, greeny-gray spectral figures in attitudes of prayer and adoration. But whom are they worshipping? I asked my guide. Themselves, came the reply immediately. This is pure self-worship. They are feeding on themselves and their own spiritual vitality in a kind of auto-spiritual cannibalism. That is why they are so sickly looking and emaciated. I was appalled and saddened by the row upon row of cells with their non-communicating inmates, spending eternity in solitary confinement, themselves the first, last, and only object of worship. The dream continued, but the point has been made. According to the teaching of the New Testament, heaven is community. My dream reminded me that hell is isolation. Quote. Your high priest beckons you, is interceding for you to draw near to God through him, to love him and love one another in forever community, not isolation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are our high priest. Thank you for interceding for us. And Lord, um, we just want to be conscious of our neighbors who don't know you, to be uh, sharing with them the good news that they can draw near to God as well through you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Um, Lord, uh, just guide us each day in Christ's name. Amen.